0: The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with one million and one dollars on the table every week. Yes, one million dollars guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The one million dollars guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.
1: Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 193, sponsored by AmericasCardRoom.com. If you want 27% rate back from AmericasCardRoom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the onehour.com website. Follow us on Twitter, at OneOuter.com, and join the Facebook group, Facebook.com slash group slash This episode, and all of our previous episodes or on oneouter.com website, and also via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com, or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, good to hear from you. It is Thursday. We are back. There's no birthdays this week. There's no common colds. It's a regular Thursday. We're on time. We're recording a new episode. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Barry. Happy to be here. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm doing good. And um, rather than go into our little, like, how's the weather and, uh, you know, why we both, you know, sometimes feel sick but still do, you know, still (laughs) pay for the team and get on this show, I actually thought, um, you know, I was watching Sky Sports News earlier and something came up. I thought it'd be a good little intro to open the show with and stuff, but, um, we've not discussed this yet. Me and Alex have had a chat for about 20 minutes before recording this, so it's still cold for Alex, um, uh, because he doesn't know what I'm going to say. So, um, yeah, no, it's not bad, it's good, I think you like it. So, we've talked about sports, and you're always using your, um, NFL and basketball and coaches I've never heard of analogies and stuff when you're talking about <laughs> poker and baseball, etc. So, I was watching Sky Sports News, and Liverpool football team, or soccer team, as some guys will know it, <laughs> or like that, and they have recently employed a coach specifically for throw-ins at football. Oh, yeah. Soccer. So, they've got a lot of stick from these old school managers who are calling it complete nonsense, and this search for an edge, and little percentages is ridiculous, and... It's a throw-in, and we don't know this and that and whatever. And it must have been a slow news day for them because they were doing quite a big segment on it. And it got me thinking. It was like they were giving a statistic of something like there's forty or fifty of these throw-ins a game, you know, per game. And so it could be a you know a critical thing. So if you can find any little edge here, then it's it's worth getting someone in, whatever. So I was just going to say to you, if you're related to poker. Um, what would be your definition if you were hired by someone as, let's say, a throw-in coach, but in the poker equivalent? So something that happens a hell of a lot a tournament, but you're looking for like a little simple tweak here or there that can help improve your edge or give you a bigger edge at that thing that's really common in a tournament?
2: That's a really good question. I, I, I have multiple thoughts on this issue. One... Yeah, it was Soccer Nomics. Uh, I, I have Soccer Maddox on my uh, Kindle and I haven't gone through that one yet, but Soccer Nomics I actually bought when I was in Richmond, Virginia and it's like the densest economic treaties on mostly Premier League football and I just loved it from start to finish. Like that book really made me see why people love soccer so much. I'm going to alternate between the terms since this is a United Kingdom slash United States show. But, uh. <clears throat> worldwide. Worldwide, yeah. Yeah. We're in Egypt, damn it. Anyway, uh, they talk about throw-ins a ton in that, in that book. They were saying, well, and there was one thing they pulled. They, they knew the definitive answer. What was it? Oh, corner kicks were a big thing, too, that they were talking about, which is, do you want to – forgive me, guys, if I don't get the terminology right, but I didn't grow up watching uh, European football. It's There's in-swinging corner kicks and out-swinging corner kicks, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, they interviewed, like, every manager in, like, Serie A or however you pronounce it, in La Liga, and Premier – Football And they said, do you think an in-swinging kick or an out-swinging kick scores more goals? And the data is blindingly obvious that an in-swinging kick, uh, if that's the one that goes toward the goal, is the one that gets you more goals because it gets them closer to the goal, right? And, but like every manager said out-swinging because those goals are dramatic and fun to watch, right? And... It just shows your human bias is actually pretty bad when it comes to actually knowing the numbers for this. So I think it's awesome that they're trying to get a throw-in coach. I bet there's – if you give a possession two or three times – I mean, it's a simple mathematical formula. Like, you get a goal this many possessions in this sport – It, I, I can't remember what the, they talk about it in soccer nomics. The number 175 is going through my head, but that doesn't sound right. But you get a, you get a goal every so many possessions and not all possessions are created equal. So if that could be affected by the throw in at all, if one will set you up for a turnover or, do you guys call it turnovers when possession changes? Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That would be a really big deal. I think that's really neat. They're looking at that. And as far as poker, the one I looked at that really blew my mind. And actually, uh, Barry and I are it, Barry's going to post a new video that I did over the weekend with uh, share my pairs. Audience was timed enough to join me for a free webinar, and I have the replay uh, up. On YouTube, so we're going to post that. But I discussed it a little bit there, which is just some basic tweaks, which is I think about opening and free betting pretty much more than anything. Uh, I'm constantly tweaking opening and free betting because if you think about it, opening's kind of, it's the, I, I okay, if we're going to really extend the football analogy, it's the beginning of your possession and you are throwing in the chips to start your possession. And a lot of people just don't think about it, period. And I really looked into the data of what makes a really good open raise and what makes a really good three bet. And I find most people don't think about their open sizes, period, which is pretty ridiculous because there's no other play other than folding. You're going to do more at the poker table. So a lot of my recent quizzes with Jonathan Little have just been every one of them is like why would you open to this amount here why would you open there so i'll give you a really good example it gets folded to you on the button and let's say you have something nominal right let's say you have queen queen 8 suited or queen 7 suited just something like if you play post flop like fine but you're not really uh you're not really dying for it Now, if that's at the beginning of the poker tournament, I'll open it to 3x because I want the big blind to call for a number of reasons. One, since it's the beginning of the tournament, the bad players haven't busted yet. Two, if I win the big blind and small blind, that's going to be worth a very small percentage of my stack. It's gonna, it's going to increase my stack size by 1%, and my goal in tournament poker is always to safely increase my stack size as much as possible. So, if I get 1x, if I increase my stack size by 1%, that's not really gonna move the needle. However, if I know this guy's a bad player, and I can take him, if the board comes like Queen Jack 5, At the beginning of a tournament, it's really likely I'll get a five or a jack to call me for three streets, and now I can increase my stack size by 10%, 11%, 12%. Whereas, let's say it gets folded to me on the button, and I have queen eight suited, queen seven suited, and we're like right before the money bubble. Well, here, a 3.5x has some gravitas that it doesn't have at the beginning of the tournament because people are going to go, what the hell is that? when they see it. And most of the time what they're going to do is fold to it. And people don't realize if everybody folds you and you increase your chip stack by 2.5 X, if your stack size was twenty five X, as it'll often be, right before the bubble, you've just increased your chip stack by ten percent with no nothing. Right? That's a very big deal, especially the lack of variance right before the bubble bursts. Because Stack retention is a important facet that is neglected constantly in tournament poker. You're not going to make money from tournament poker unless you cash a lot and win a lot. You have to get through those two finish lines. Those are the two biggest payout jumps. And anyhow, as you can hear, I have done a ton of thinking about opening. Everybody else is... I'll give you an example of a post-flop play that I love. Which is, the first guys I saw doing this were Russians, uh, which was, they would, uh, versus, well, okay, here's a couple I'm thinking of right now, but let's say you have pocket sixes and you call out of the big blind, and the board comes six of diamonds, seven of diamonds, four of spades, and you check to the initial raiser. Let's say the initial raiser is a really good player. Well, if you check call on that board, he's gonna think, okay, he doesn't have he doesn't have a set because he probably would have check raised that board. He doesn't have tens, jacks, queens, kings, or aces because he would have three bat. Uh he doesn't have two pair because on that board he's probably gonna be worried about a lot of flush and straight draws. Uh so I I'm just gonna try to barrel him off of his six or seven on the, the turn or in river, right? because most of the time what I'm going to see are river cards. So it's a very dangerous play, but he's only going to have 8-9 or a flush draw, maximum about 20-25% of the time, which even that is being very generous. I'm giving him a ton of suited connectors, which a lot of the super good players will not open from middle position or whatnot. uh, Oftentimes it's even less than that. And there are certain guys that if you cap your range, they will just barrel down constantly. Now, that is a play I love. That is a play I would love to do a YouTube video on. That is a play that would make every highlight reel if I did it at the European Poker Tour. I get to use that play like once a year. So twice a year. Because if I'm in a game where I get to use that play, I have table selected horribly. So I think it's actually imperative. It's actually pertinent that we focus on what seems like these small details. And I think it's amazing that sport is showing young people that it's in the details where you find victories. It, it's interesting to me, too, that so many old football coaches would be criticizing this because all of the data shows that most coaches don't do a whole lot for their Premier League teams. Have you ever heard about this, Barry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a ton of data that support that. Uh, the What's his name, who just retired? Uh, do you pronounce his name, Wanger? Uh Arsenal. Arsenal, Wanger, yeah, with Arsenal. Yeah, like, he had, obviously, the greatest pull, statistically. Like, if you looked at the value of his players, uh, money ball-wise, versus how many wins they got. They constantly outperformed. So that guy was doing something. But the vast majority of these guys don't. So it's like you have all this evidence that these guys are doing things wrong. And the the fact that they would criticize anybody doing anything different, that sounds a lot like in poker, like when the old guard hears something. Uh, a 3.5 x-ray. <laughs> we never did that back in my day. It sounds like, sorry, it's going to be a baseball analogy. (laughs) A (laughs) curveball? Who throws a curve? It's all speed right down the middle. Right there, 23 skidoo. It just sounds antiquated to me. And you think that that's the
1: same in poker?
2: Oh, yeah. In poker, there's a lot of, like, old school. Well, one of the things I do, like, I don't open... Uh, the ba- the basic thing you'll watch this video and I'll show you guys on Flopzilla and combinatorics wise why an open that just get call gets called by one player almost always is profitable. I'll show the reason for that briefly is the average guy is going to miss the board 45 percent of the time and if he's folding high cards to a half pot c bet that needs to work only 33 percent of the time. So you have quite a margin for error there, but it- and. A lot of times I just do my opens with the focus of do not get three bet. So at the start of like at the start of big tournaments, sometimes I'll just open for five X and then everybody looks at me really strangely and everybody folds the first side are the big blind calls, which is a fiesta. That's amazing. If they're going to call me for five X out of position with their garbage hands, which a lot of them do and give me their stack and I don't understand why, but what happens most of the time is I open for 5X with my Ace-10 offsuit from the hijack or whatever it is, right? And then everybody folds. And then I open to 2X the next hand, and everybody goes, oh, I'm not full, falling for that. And then they don't 3 that me, and they don't – they a lot of times they fold. And all of these are fun, but the old poker pros are just sitting at the table, like, chortling at me the entire time. Like, oh, God, <laughs> look at this guy. First of all, if I'm a dumb player, just say nothing. Just let me waste my chips. You're showing me you're not a hustler when you do that. You've already branded yourself as lesser than with that kind of behavior. Do you think a pool hustler ever sees a mark walking into the room and committing miscues and then starts chortling at him openly? No, he's going to try to engage him in a game. He's going to be very cordial. You're showing me you're not a hustler. You're not from where I'm from, if you're doing that. I think you're rich. I think you're white. I think you grew up in a household where you never had to scrape for anything. And I think you're a sucker, quite frankly. That's what I believe that behavior says. Now, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement in poker. These people who are acting as if poker is solved are acting as if, we hear this crap every year, right, Barry? Like, poker just gets tougher and tougher every year. And then you go play live, and people are, like, limp-calling 11X with King 2 suited, and you're going, what? Mm -hmm. I I don't get it. And you play on these, like, yeah, if you're going to play on PokerStars, like, have fun. It's going to be a bunch of dorks balancing against each other. But if you play on any other site on the Internet, you're just going to still see just terrible play, especially if that – Game is associated with a sports book. And the new thing now, the old guard has suddenly turned to Game Theory Optimal as just a catch-all. And I'm like, look, buddy, you're not Doug Polk. Like Doug Doug Polk, all these guys, Isaac Haxton, uh, Fader Holes, those guys need to know theoretically what they should be doing and what the other guys should be doing because likely their opponents are close to that. But it's the it goes back to the age-old thing that we talk about on this podcast, which is if you're playing rock, paper, scissors against a guy who's perfectly balancing, your best bet is to randomize yourself, right? Because if he's just balancing, he can't really be beaten. Like, there's no way to exploit him. But if you have an imbalance and he can spot that, he he can start changing his uh, frequencies to deal with your imbalances. That's why Game Theory Optimal is so powerful to begin with, especially in higher stakes games where you're going to be in for a lot of money really quickly versus people you don't know. However, if you're playing the average guy at like a $20 tournament, which let's be honest, most of our most of our listeners play like one, two, no limit. They play like 20 to to $100 online tournaments, like $200, $300 live tournaments, maybe like a $1K once, once or twice a year. If you're playing with those guys, look, here's, here's what's going to happen. If you bet half pot into a guy, he cannot – he is supposed to only fold 33% of the time. The other two-thirds of the time, he's supposed to be doing something else. Otherwise, you could bet half pot with any two cards. There is no evidence in any live or online database I've ever found that people, 95% of people come even close to defending with two-thirds of their hands. If you're just randomizing from the beginning, I think you're making a mistake because the play is often just to bet and to take the pot. If you're playing cash games versus very good players and I see your C bet is really balanced, I'm really proud of you. If it's a tournament, I'm going, what are you doing? This guy's watching the Carolina Panthers. He's not balancing. He's not check raising you. He's not floating you. He's just going to fold. Bet and take his money. And then they go, but then my C bet will be unbalanced. Good. Who's going to notice? When you find a guy that notices, I got an idea, don't C-bet into him that much. Let him over-adjust. Let him, because they'll see your C-bet online is 75%, right? Well, find out who's the reg at the table. It's not that hard. It's You'll see it in their statistics. You can shark scope them on some sites, et cetera. Uh, And versus them, don't let your C-bet be 75%. Let it be 44%. Let it be mostly value, and then when he raises you as a bluff, collect. This is the way to play the game, in my in my opinion. And there's a lot of guys. Uh, I think he's okay with me talking about this, but Riard's Nobilis is this kid, this Latian kid. He's like, I guess, I guess he'd be at like lower stakes tournaments right now in the Euro sites, but I'm just convinced this kid's gonna make it big because he's a real independent thinker and I just love talking with him. And his results before when he was doing GTO and after he was doing GTO. I mean after, excuse me, before when he was trying to enact GTO principles and then when he said screw it, I'm going to exploit everybody, they're just night and day. Like one graph is all over the place and the other graph is just straight up. And there's a lot of guys I see like that. So It's really convenient for the old guard to say GTO, GTO, GTO when there's no skin in the game. But because if you're just a big player, you're probably you've probably got a lot of money set aside, and you can kid yourself quite a bit, and you don't have as many students that are really going to be affected. But I can't, you know, if I've got a guy under me that is trying to feed their family with their poker play, I have to go with what works. I, I can't really hide behind like, well, balance perfectly and nothing bad will happen to you. it's like, well, nothing bad will happen to you but it, it, the, the problem being human human beings do not balance perfectly. They're not supercomputers If you were if game theory optimal play were really, going to do something for you. Don't you think it would have done something for you by now? Don't you think three years after everybody not shutting up about it every five seconds, every training video being about it, don't you think it would have changed your game by now? I really think being really sloppy journeyman, Brad Gilbert, goofy poker player going after the little edges. I think that gets you the money, but a lot of the old guard doesn't like it because it doesn't look sexy. You can't really you can't really overbet fold and look cool. You you just can't really do that. But you can sit there playing GTO and just kinda of grinding it out and looking cool. And I'm much more about like let, let's get these dollars together. Let's get these dollars and cents. Okay. Okay.
1: Hey, Alex, yeah, I can Alex. hear myself but quite badly. All
2: right. I'm mute you
1: Okay, Uh, right, let's get into the questions. Um, When I asked for a comparison with, like, a throwing technique for poker, I was actually meaning how you throw your chips in, Alex, you know, like, sexually throw them in. Uh, (laughs) No, not actually, you know.
2: In the air. Yeah, I was being
1: literal, not an analogy. No, I'm joking.
2: (laughs) Sometimes I spin them. uh, uh, What's the other one? I twist them like a top. It looks really good. Yeah.
1: Okay, uh, right, let's get to the questions. Um, This one is from Omi. What constitutes the field? Alex, when you refer to your database, is the database global or is it weighted to a specific country? If global, do you have plans to do any specific coaching videos tailored to specific countries, provided you could break out the database by country? And if I could be so bold, In the U.S., could you do it by East Coast, Midwest, West Coast, and South, mostly Florida and the Gulf? Thanks for taking the time.
2: Hey, Ami. Uh, Very good question. Look, as far as specific databases, that's I still do private lessons. I have a hard time ever leaving private lessons because it's my greatest BS detector. there's no – when a guy can talk to me privately, if there's a play he knows is not going to work, he's going to tell me over the phone. He's also going to – he's going to tell me over Skype, and he's going to show me data that maybe he doesn't want to send over email or something like that. And that's just my greatest way for continuing to learn about the field and poker players and what people are thinking all over the world. So – even though I have to really severely restrict how many lessons I do now because I'm working so much more on these info products that help you guys, I do have to keep some things to the private lessons because if you get a private lesson and it's just all the stuff that you've seen in the downloadable videos, you're probably not going to be that happy. So, One of the things I keep the private lessons is I'll discuss what I see in each country and that it's not really a big secret though, because as I'll let you know, it used to be much more variable. So like back in the day, back in the day, like France and Italy would check behind pairs so much. It was insane. So, there there was a lot of plays you could do there. Like, the average C-bet there would just be way lower than it was in the States. So the play in the States was just check-raise absolutely everybody when they C-bet into you. And the play versus the French or Italians were figure out if the guy checks back top pair specifically. And if he does and he checks back, never lead the turn. And actually, you can check fold second pair. And if he only checks back second and third pair when he checks the flop see, just over that 1.7x on the turn and see what he does right now that's something i used to talk about a lot more in private lessons but it's not as applicable anymore because very strangely if you look at these databases on me they, everybody kind of i in my new book uh, exploitative play in live poker uh What is really interesting to me, I even, I joke about it in the book, it's probably not gonna come off as a joke, but I call one chapter, How Homo sapiens Play Poker, because it's really interesting to me that all of these mold to almost the same numbers to begin with. Like, you can take a poker market that people don't normally think about, like, a poker market that has never been touched by the outside world, like Iran, and you will see the numbers gradually mold into the exact way the Americans are playing. It is fascinating. So one of the things you'll see in almost every database is people, when they don't have a pair, they fold on the flop. That is uniform across the world. People do not like calling with high cards on the flop. Now, they'll call with like Ace-10 on like a 2-2-3 board, but they're not going to call with King Jack, even though... It's a little bit more, it's actually cleaner else if you hit them. There's a lot of people that just, they miss the board, they fold. You find that everywhere. You'll find people do not three bet nines. You don't see them three bet tens. People like to three bet queens, kings, aces, and that's ace-king, and that's it. That's what people like to do. Now, the variations you will find, the ones I'll talk about, and I'll be honest with you, the other reason I don't, love sharing this stuff is my databases are just messes like they're just you're not allowed to combine databases according to every poker site you are allowed to write down numbers and average them i asked them i wrote a lot of emails saying are you sure that's the rule because that's effectively doing the same thing and they were like yeah that's fine like okay like fine by me right and What ends up happening, but, I mean, you kind of can't blend them together anyway because I have ruined – I'm on my third computer in the last year. Like, literally, I have ruined a gaming laptop. I've got the fastest computer I could get from a company that normally makes computers for StarCraft players. So if you guys have ever watched eSports – like, if your computer shuts down, that's it. Like, you lose the game. That's on you. So, these computers are made for stability in mind. I ruin that damn thing. Then I ruin the computer after it. And then the computer after it, like, the one I'm on right now is, like, my do Skype lessons laptop. This one, I can import, like, a couple million hands and look at it, and it'll still run with some speed. But then if you start to like, more and more, it gets even worse, you're not going to see as much variation as you'd like. In most of the databases I've looked at, also AMI, they're, my students want to show me, but they don't want me to be able to analyze their play just in case we ever really play. So what they'll do is they'll show me the database, and I'll get to write down the numbers, and that's it. Like, And some got – what I do notice – okay, so you're asking about East Coast, West Coast. Uh, West Coast poker, way tougher. West Coast poker, very difficult, because Las Vegas, Los Angeles, since the dawn of time, that's where you went to make your bones in the United States, if you were going to be a poker player. The Las Vegas players, their three bet is much higher, and I I want to say like 30% higher off the top of my head. Uh, They're much better at floating if you see that into them out of position, uh, a lot better at turning their hands into a bluff, especially if you move up in stakes. You'll, like, raising on the river is, like, if you look at a lottery site in Canada, raise river versus a bet will be, like, 2%, right? It'll be, like, royal flush plus. And if you get to uh American games on the West Coast that are, higher stakes you're going to see four times that you're going to see a lot of guys like calling down with second pair two times and then you bet really thinly on the river and they kind of can tell you're betting thinly and they're just like i'm all in they turn their hand into a set blocker right you will find that like you are never going to see that in washington dc you're never going to see that in Baltimore. you're not going to – you will see that in Florida a little bit more because there's more high-stakes players that have migrated to Florida. You will see it a little bit more in Atlantic City. But the whole eastern seaboard, it's just – like if you're playing in Rhode Island or Buffalo or something, or Montreal, you're just not going to see that unless you move to really high-stakes games. High-stakes games always have more aggression in general because the type of men who have the kind of money – to play high-stakes poker, they tend to be more aggressive individuals themselves. They uh, they were probably pretty aggressive in business, and that's how they have the money they have, and they're going to just be aggressive. But uh, as far as Canadian poker, I honestly don't know as much about as I should, even though I love playing in Montreal. They're, they seem to be pretty East Coast-centric, though. Like, it's a lot like the East Coast of the United States. Uh, just a little bit more... Their open tends to be a little higher, uh, which, like, it's okay to open whatever in Canada, whereas you do get some snobs about that in the United States. Uh, other than that, I can't really remember much variations. And uh, other stuff, I, that's the stuff off the top of my head I think I can discuss. The other thing is one of my buddies who actually, he has, like, a team... I don't know if they're, like, a team of horses or just, like, players he's associated with, but they found a way to track every one of their hands. And, like, the stats he puts together, I don't know if I'm allowed to discuss as far as live poker. That's the stuff that, like, you could easily, easily find if you track, like, a minimum number of hands. Uh There's... I can't talk about that. And... oh Oh, and when you go to, like, Europe, opening range is much more... Much more disciplined. Uh, in the United States, it's very okay to open whatever the hell you feel like. Uh, in, in Canada, even more so. There's just random areas where you'll get some snobs, right? In the United States, like if you're playing in Laughlin, Nevada, and you open like just five-eight of diamonds from like really early position, you're probably going to get a weird look, right? But you just won't find anyone who will do that in a lot of these tougher Euro tournaments. And this is, by the way, when I say that, I'm talking about Europe that's not English-speaking. There's two different worlds. There's really three different worlds in Europe. There's English-speaking Western Europe, there's non-English-speaking Western Europe, and then there's Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, just due to the value of the dollar, uh, I think the chess background, far more discipline as, as, uh, as far as their opens. Far more uh, educated, I find, in their free betting. I really love how they free bet. I really love their play. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life was final table WPT Prague. It was an incredible experience. I It was just – but it was a tough game. It was a really tough game. Those guys can really play. Uh, you'll see those guys uh, – the Eastern Europeans I really have a high opinion of. A lot of the – Guys I talk strat with are Eastern European and they, uh, much, I, I find a lot more deceptive post-flop and it just, it's really hard to range them post-flop. Whereas in Western Europe, especially the English speaking world, you're gonna see a lot of, you're going to see a lot of the tropes that were really normal in early tournament poker. And all of this, by the way, I'm thinking about tournament poker because that's my specialty. So you'll see like if a guy calls you on that six, seven, four board, two to suit, he usually is not slow playing a set in Western Europe. They usually raise for value with that. Whereas Eastern Europe, like they have a lot of different moves, right? And uh I I don't the Nordic countries are pretty good on the three bet, but a a lot of Western Europe isn't. As, as far as, I, I don't know as much about Ireland, England, Scotland, as I should. Forgive me, Barry. But it seems to be a little bit more casual. I feel like just due to the value of pounds sterling and the strength of the economy, people are fine with goofing off a little bit more. But I don't, I can't really speak to it as much as I'd like. Spain and France, I can't, Italy, I can't say a ton about because I haven't looked at them within the last six months. So what I have from before probably doesn't say much. Same thing goes for if we're going to go to Asia, South Korea used to be a really exciting market because you would see a lot of three betting. This kind of goes for Brazil too. Brazil and South Korea used to be very exciting markets. And just because people were very wild on the three-bet or at least trying things on the three-bet, which I really loved. Uh, maybe a little too loose on the opens, but at least trying things. Whereas both of those countries have really calmed down recently, and I think that's just because online poker got tougher. And if you want to see the real separation between the English-speaking world and the non-English-speaking world in Europe or it, with any country – Look at how Brazil plays and Portugal plays. Uh, the Portuguese uh, English is taught as a second language in most of their schools. If you watch Looney Tunes in Portugal, it's likely going to be in English. Uh, whereas if you watch Looney Tunes in Brazil, it's going to be dubbed in Portuguese. So what ends up happening is the Brazilians learn amongst each other, and I think they have like a wilder poker, whereas Portugal is it's a more educated form of poker, like educated from the original stalwarts from the United States. So it's much more, I think it's a little more careful on the three but a little bit more careful on the open in stuff like that. That's the stuff that I think would really get you started. And as far as everywhere in South America, outside of Brazil, I couldn't really tell you right now. Mexico, I couldn't really tell you. Uh Canada, I need to brush up on anything in Asia, I couldn't tell you. And the, it, it changes every single day on me. It's, it's one of those – that kind of stuff will help you if you're about to, like, go show up. But the things you're always looking for is how they are on the open and how they are on the three bet, right? So, like, in Scandinavia, they're really good on the three bet, so you got to cool off on the open, it, but there'll usually be a couple Scandies who open just a little too much, so you got to three bet them quite a bit. And I think you have to go to a sizing that doesn't leave a cold four bet open as easily because they're a little bit better at that. Whereas, let's say the reason I love the United States so much is they just open everything and they respect every time I three bet, and I, I don't get it. Like I just don't yet Like I'll, I'll get four bet in. Central Europe, Eastern Europe. I'll get I'll get four bet uh, in L.A. but not in the East Coast. So it's a yeah, it's a fun time. I, I hope I gave you some ideas, Ami. Okay. okay. And the next
1: question is from. We'll do this one. It's a hand sent in, and I, just a side note. I was going to say, um, if listeners can get in touch as well. When people send in some large emails, I just read them out verbatim, and I was wondering if people want me to, like, dissect it, but then some people do get in touch and say thanks for reading out the whole thing, so uh, for the time being, I'm just going to keep doing that and give, give people the, the sort of airtime as well. So uh, this letter is from Ken. Uh, Good morning, Alex. I purchased some products from you, listened to your podcast, which are quite enjoyable, by the way. Quite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and take advantage of all the free youtube videos i know you're busy but if you have a moment to respond that would be awesome maybe i'll run into you at the wpt uh marilyn live in a few weeks and thank you personally i want to preface the hand scenario stating if it wasn't for your products i don't believe i have the solutions if my solutions are correct so this guys want to send in this hand history and alex to go over it and
2: it's going to be pretty hilarious it. if he butchers this one
1: start Defend. Yeah, fast. Try to yeah he's hyped that up now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, he begins, In a tournament, I just reached the money. I have around average stack, which is 25 big blinds. The blinds are 6k, 12k, with a 12k big blind ante. Recently moved to this table and haven't played one orbit yet. We are eight-handed. The hijack raises, he's the chip leader at my table, to 25k. Folds to me in the big blind with jack ten of hearts. I flat. Mistake number one I'm sure of now. The flop is... We're
2: up there for a big blind plus, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: flop is queen ten nine. Rainbow, I check. Villain bets 12k. I call. Mistake number two. Turn is a king. We both check. River brick. I bet 35k. Villain moves all in. I snap call, and he shows ace-jack off, and I'm out. My solutions are I should have 3-bet pre, villain would have called presumably, then C-bet after flop, and I think he folds, but I'll never know. The way the hand played out originally, I should have folded once re-raised on the river. Faults in my game, I know I don't 3-bet enough, and sometimes I react too quickly Before replaying the hand in my head. At the very least, I believe I should have folded after the raise on the river.
2: Okay. Let me start this explanation with, I have no idea what he's opening with there. So I actually am not sure what your profitability margin is when you jam there, but it's usually pretty good if you look at it, especially depending on what he opens. Now, if you call there, there's, there's a trade-off, right? Which is, it's, uh, it's supposed to be less variance, but it's also less profit, right? You're out of position, you're really just looking to save half of that big blind, as opposed to, I think if you jam, you recover the whole damn thing a lot of the time. Uh, so anyway, you call there, all right, you accepted less. Now, if you do this, it's because you think this guy, this is how to think like a poker player. Uh, one of the sections I talk about is stack size. One of the big things to think of in that spot, what is the most important thought when you flat there? The most important thought is, Nine guys out of ten will not double barrel you as a bluff. Uh, and, it, sorry, did you hear the chopper just go overhead?
1: <laughs> no, but you broke off a little bit.
2: Okay, okay, it was really loud here, but yeah, I was, I was about to go into an apocalypse now monologue. Anyhow, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So, the thing to think of there is, usually, if this guy double barrels, I, Obviously, if you're playing with, like, hyper-aggressive Scandies, it's it's not a – Russians, it's not a done deal. But a lot of guys will not double-barrel versus your short of a stack as a bluff because I don't know why. They just – they feel like they're pot committed on the turn or they feel like you're committed already after you call flop and uh, pre-flop with that short stack. I, I'm not really sure, but you'll see the double-barrel just go down to nothing versus those guys. So what that means is – You can be much more careful with the second pair or something like that. Now, you flop Queen 10 9, and you're kind of in an awkward spot as far as chip, as far as the chip disparity. So, we're at, he said about 25 effective, right? So now we're at 23.5 right now. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, it was 25 effective, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I will honestly give you the play I do here a lot, which is I'll just lead 1.5x, and then one of two things hap one of three things happens, obviously. One is they fold, which happens if the guy is like Ace too suited, uh, which is fine, okay. The the hands over. Sometimes they get really pissed off and they raise, which is awesome, because let's say he goes to 7x, now I just shove, and the cool thing about that shove is you know he's probably not raising the queen, right? So he's raising, like, King Jack and you're dead. He's raising a set and you're dead. But he's probably – but he's also raising a lot of, like, hey, screw you, buddy, with ace. And a lot of, hey, man, with sevens. I really love doing this against young guys because you can see the second they put their chips out there, like, oh, crap, I don't, I, I don't rep a whole lot here, right? And then you just shove, and then they curse themselves out, and they fold. Uh, you see a lot of guys do that with a draw. That's the one I love is, like, the board is like queen, ten nine. They'll raise with uh, a draw, like ace, jack. And then you jam into them, and they'd call off. And then usually, well, they have one out to – they have four outs to kill you. But most of the time you got them, right? You have it with the pair. Uh, the other thing – you just get a lot of random spew raises from younger guys. Uh, like they'll turn an ace-nine into a bluff or something like that. And I like that because it kind of shuts the door on the guy. And position is only as important as how many streets you play. So you have 17x preflop. Some guy opens and you jam. Obviously, position is not a big deal there. You don't even need to hear you're in the small blind there because you're not going to play flop, turn, and river. You only play flop with this guy. That's fine. Now, that's one play you can do. If you're going to check call, the problem is you just totally capped your range. You let the guy know, I have a pair or a draw. Unsurprisingly, most people play pretty damn well when they know what you have. But what you have going for you is he's probably not going to do anything about it anyway. That's one of those things. Like, yeah, theoretically-wise, GTO-wise... Are, well, that's not – this isn't even really GTO, but, like, theory-wise, a lot of guys will know your cap there, and theoretically they should do something about it. In practice, not a whole lot of people do anything about it. So you're pretty safe on the check call. I think the check raise there's no way it's unprofitable, but it's probably really thinly unprofitable. I mean really thinly profitable. I love that limp jam a lot of the time because the other thing that happens is you – you lead 1.5x, and the guy calls you really quick, and he just told you he doesn't have a big hand. He just told you, I have a pair, or I have a draw. And then you can, uh, it, it, depending on the guy, a lot of times you can lead again on the turn, say like 3.5x. Most guys will not raise that unless they hit it or unless they have the joint. And then on the river, with these stack sizes I don't think a lot of guys will take a shot but you can block that if you want you can also chip you can also check fold that's fine uh, and by the way this is a really that play I just described if the guy knows what you're doing that really puts your jaw out there right but the other thing you can do is like sometimes with old guys I'll just bet 1.5 X there on the flop and you'll still get angry raises from some of them and I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, Barry. There's usually – you, you know the angry senior citizens at the card room? You ever get a few of them? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I love them. So you bet at 1.5x, and you go, all right, kid, and then you jam. But if they do just call you, a lot of them just want to see the showdown. So you bet 2x on the turn. You bet 3x on the river. And it looks really stupid, but it got you to showdown with second hand uh, – second pair. Now, check call there, totally fine. Uh totally fine. I and by the way, I usually do that one point five X there with like really young guys who I know are hot headed. That's not what I do a lot of the time. I just want to give you guys other angles that you could possibly use. Now so you check call there, which is okay, that's probably eh, nobody's i you're probably not gonna get double barrel bluff, that's fine. So You check call there, that's probably what you should be doing most of the time. Turn is a king, right? So we hit our hand. Yeah, the turn was a king. Turn's a king. So here, you should lead if you think that's not going to be blindingly obvious. So versus young guys who see like the bluff everywhere, it might just call me there with a pair. A lot of times I'll just lead something bigger because they won't think I'm going to leave there with a straight bigger. And then you'll even get some of them to just jam on you or raise you again. Like you leave five X there and they make it 12 X, right? Leaving themselves room to fold. And then you just, you just put it, uh, you just put it in or you can call, excuse me. You don't put it in. You call and let them bluff off on the river uh, versus most guys. It kind of sucks you do have to check and if they check behind they kind of let you know they don't have it. I mean some guys are cagey, but a lot a lot of guys aren't. And if they check back they let you know I have one pair or two pair and then you can just leave the river cuz people will fall with a queen there like ace queen uh, on a unastoundingly large percentage of the time. That makes no sense to me. And yeah, anyway, so you can just check, and if he checks behind you, lead river, and then he'll get you, he'll call you with worse. Now you lead river on the river was like a five, Is that right? Uh, the river
1: was. I think he just says correct. Let me check.
2: Brett. Uh, okay. Um. Won, do
1: a five, so. River, river, but we both check river. Brett. He just says okay.
2: So, so, on the river, he leads and then he gets jammed on, right? Uh. Yeah, he bets 35K, and then the guy moves all in. and Okay, so he bets 35K. So far, everything's fine in this hand, right? It's uh, I tried to give you guys alternate lines because you shouldn't go with the standard line every single time. There are variations, but most of the time I'm playing it the way you just played it, right? Now, you lead, and he jams. And right now I'm going to let you know the question is unanswerable. Because the average, okay, so I can tell you some angles that in some numbers you probably want to know. The average English speaking peoples, let's put it that, of poker player raises on the river like 2-3% of the time. So if you think you have a hand to beat a guy who only raises one time out of 50 there, you be my guest and call. Now, the second thing I'm going to say is live poker, if you're deep in a live poker tournament and this guy's young and he's fatigued, that number is not 3%. There's a lot of just random I'm pissed off. So it's really hard for me to answer that. If this were the Poker Olympics and I were the head coach on your team and I saw you call there, I wouldn't run up to you screaming, we wouldn't get into the locker room and I'd say, you blew it, kid! I just, I just say, oh god, you know, uh, maybe you could find a fold there, but meh. it's, uh, it, it tends to be, with an older guy though, it tends to be the hand. It, it tends to be the joint. Or at least you're chopping, right? But calling for a chop, people don't gather like how bad it is to call for a chop. Right? Mm -hmm. Like the pot just get thrown off so bad. But if this is let's say I lead on a twenty five year old kid who's a little fatigued, they may jams there, you're gonna have to call a lot of the time. So it's but I don't well let me ask you, Barry. Once he jams on once he jams on us, what should we do? Uh, against
1: the way, well, what I'm taking from the guy's description and the way I'm picturing the table in my hand, I'd fold.
2: You know what I? I honestly just talk to the guy. Like I just, and people will give you stuff if you wait there a minute or two. Yeah. Because think if you're bluffing, what if you're bluffing? Imagine like bluffing is deeply uncomfortable for a lot of people. In fact. There's a new article on DMB Poker, their magazine, where one of the writers was talking about how uncomfortable he felt bluffing the first time he played live, and it was because he was taught growing up that lying is immoral, and when he could see people's faces, he felt off about it, and something that you will be able to tell, he, the thing that amazes me is people will be businessmen, and they will go play poker, and in their business, they can tell when someone's putting them on. They will, in a negotiation, they will take their time, they will make the guy play to his frame, they will wait the guy out, and then when they're playing poker, which is a people game as well, they'll just rush this decision. And that blows my mind. I think what you should do here... Is just take your time. If he is bluffing, a lot of guys feel like they just jumped off of a cliff, forty feet in ice water. You will be able to pick up the mannerisms. One of the first of all nine nine times out of ten, you think long, you think wrong. Okay, if you're thinking this is a fold, you're thinking long, just fold. Okay, the best day of my year is when I pick off a guy in a bluff. It doesn't happen that much right? That's like the grand slam in baseball. That's like the hat trick in football. It doesn't come up that often. Most of your money in poker is going to be meat and potatoes, bread and butter bets, opening when people are not going to three-bet you, three-betting when people are not going to four-bet you, C-betting when people are going to pull their high cards. That's it. In value betting your pairs that are better than the pairs that are on that board that connect with that board. That's going to be most of your money. This pickoff, this is this is high level crap. Okay, now I'm letting you know you're forgiven for calling there if it's a young guy. You're forgiven. That doesn't mean it's optimal. If you're trying to play the best poker, I. I do believe I've heard this hand before. So I think a couple of weeks ago, somebody wrote me about it. He wrote me about this, and I, I wrote like a really quick response. I said, don't beat yourself up on the river call. Because a lot of times you do at the end of a tournament, you pick up a fatigued player just says, screw it. And a lot of times you do even just chop. But if I'm really playing this in this spot, and I'm really thankful that we had this on one outer so I could take more time with it, I am going, this is the biggest spot in my tournament. I'm going to take my time. I do not take time any other time in poker. I, like, preflop the second it's on me, I fold. If I'm going to 3-bet someone, like, literally the second it's on me, I 3-bet. If I C-bet, I take max 5 seconds. Usually I'm just thinking of the sizing. Usually turn bets, not much more. At most, I'll take like 20 seconds if I'm just not sure of something, right? On this river decision, everyone can bite my ass. I'm going to take my time. This is my tournament. You have every right. And if you want to be given the amount of time you needed, just right after he jams, tell everyone, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to need a second with this. Nobody has ever called the clock on me after I did that. No one has ever done it. And... Again, you can just try to make the guy crack up. So if the guy has a card protector, it looks like might be a personal thing about him. Like, you can bring up the card protector. Like, like that's an interesting trinket or something like that. But it doesn't have to be, uh, like, let's see, one time I saw a guy with, like, well, I'm not sure I got this story completely right because I've played so many hands, but I think it was like a little Buddha, right? Or something like that. And just in the – you try to find the fever moment when everybody's really quiet and they're trying to give you your time. And then I said, why Buddha? And the guy kind of like cracked up a little bit. Now, Barry, can you crack up when you're bluffing? Mm,
1: some people can.
2: So it's it's like what would the ratio be, like 1 to 10 that can do it? Yeah, I don't know. It depends on, again, it's so subjective if it's nervous often or whatever, you know. You know who's actually really good at that? Like, just being calm under pressure? And I'm not, I'm not doing this to, like, kiss your ass, Harry, but, like, uh, Brits and people from the United Kingdom and Ireland, just really good at it. New Yorkers are really good at it, too. I just think, it's, I don't know. I don't know why. I think it's because you guys are always clowning on each other to begin with. It's the same thing in New York. Everybody just clowns on each other nonstop. But, like, if you're from L.A., that's just not, I don't know, everybody's so prim and proper a lot of times. But, yeah, anyway, it, its it, I find you can get a lot from the guy. Whereas, let's say you say, why Buddha? And the guy does a really, like, forced smile. You got a little off of that, right? And at the very, my whole thing is, look, you're gonna make mistakes. This is, if you, this goes back to my overall view of poker. If you're playing these poker tournaments for fun, as you should be doing, I think very few people should be playing poker professionally. If you're doing this for fun, you are doing it to go all out. You are doing it to win tournaments, not to min cash. You are doing it to play the best poker of your life. Take your time. If you're going to screw up, gloriously screw up. Take like take as much information as you could in there, wait out the decision, and then be very sure of it, and then follow through. And then in my mind, you've got nothing to be ashamed of. When my students bring me a hand like that, and they go, I waited the guy out for a little while, and then I got him to talk about something. He did like a nervous smile. And then I I, I just couldn't see him checking it back on the turn because I saw him bet with a set on the turn before. So I called him off in the river. My first thing is, you've got nothing to be ashamed of. You can develop off of that. You can develop off of that amount of thought. But if you just rushed it, that's not what you entered the tournament to do. You entered the tournament to try to play the best poker of your life. Don't be scared in there. If you want to know why a lot of guys go from playing amazing college golf to not doing well on the PGA Tour, it's because... When they're playing college golf, they're just goofing off, right? It's like it's not as big of a deal. People don't watch college golf on ESPN in the United States, so they just see the shot, hit the shot, see the shot, hit the shot, see the shot, hit the shot. Then they get on the PGA Tour. Now they start overthinking things, right? Well, no, be loose. Talk to the guy. Have fun. It's cards. Make Make your shot, for lack of a better term. Take your shot. If it hits, it hits, it's wrong, it's wrong, but the next day you'll know more. But just don't rush it, right? Don't just, like, not even see your shot and just rush it, right? Play, play your game, play it fluidly, have fun with it, take in what you what you can, and then let it go. Let it go. I think, honestly, this river is unanswerable because there's times I've called there and smashed my chips in and there's times like the second I raised, I just threw my hand into the mark. So I, I honestly can't give you an answer here. But I think this really helps us discuss process and keeping loose on the field and remembering it's a game of people and taking advantage of the time you have looking at the guy face-to-face. And also I would
1: add that he said that you should have three-bet, 3, three, bet, three and then see that after the flop, and he thinks he folds. I was like, there's no way he's folding ace-jack on a
2: 3 <laughs> 10 No, no, no. You're doing the old. Daniel Negreanu used to always make fun of John Juwanda, which was, John. in John Juwanda's world, if you lost the hand, you did something wrong. And obviously Negreanu didn't buy that. There, you got to make sure you're not just, saying to yourself, I lost the hand, therefore I did something wrong. No, every – like, you're going to bust tournaments all the time. They're poker tournaments. They're not – there's so much variance in these. You have to just accept it. That's part of the fun of it, that you could be gone at any second, and you got to enjoy the ride while it lasts.
1: Yeah. Okay, uh, that is all we have time for this week, question-wise. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for some of your materials, etc.?
2: Check out my newest YouTube video, which Barry is going to put in the liner notes. And yeah, I think you guys will like it. It's about 45 minutes. It expands with all the graphics that I can do in a webinar that I can't do over a podcast. If you want to see the elaborations and cement the concepts a little bit more in your mind, check out that video. And How to Think Like a Poker Player is still on sale because I'm going to be doing some lectures with some poker schools, and they got pushed back a couple weeks uh, because I'm going to be out to play the World Poker Tour events the next week. So, yeah, it's still on sale after I a- do those lectures with those poker schools. It's going to be 200 right now. It's 80 Uh after, after that sale period is over. So check it out while you can. Uh, you can follow my newsletter by going to PokerHeadRush.com, which is my old blog site going to the top right and signing up in that corner. Uh, you can write me at Alex at PokerHeadRush.com. And you can tweet me at the assassinato, And check out my Classic training videos on Tournament Poker Edge. And by classic, I mean I'm doing the formats that I grew up loving. So there's a new live select video going up of me playing Amer- on America's Card Room. There's a lot of hand history reviews. I do hand history reviews of students. Uh, there's a, uh, it, it's a lot of fun stuff, which I, I think you guys would enjoy. Yeah. And thank you for tuning into the podcast.
1: Okay, and keep your questions coming in for Alex on future shows. Please email questions at oneouter.com or post them in the Facebook group or tweet them to me at oneouter.com That's at O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-N Alex, thanks very much for joining us again this Thursday. We will see you all next week. Cheers.
0: Cheers! The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with one million and one dollars on the table every week. Yes, one million dollars guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The one million dollars guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.